On the next Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, Suspicious Behavior. Snap Judgment, storytelling with a beat. Do not miss it. This Snap Judgment podcast is supported by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters, and MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. Okay, so for about four years, every time I set foot in an airport, I was detained. Someone would take a look at my identification, and then they want to speak to me in some back room. It got to the point that I'd have to build detention time into my itinerary. So, one day, my wife and I went to Mexico. And of course, on the way back, I was detained. This guy starts going through my luggage real slowly, real slow, and out of my suitcase, he pulls a pen from my alma mater and says, you went to the University of Michigan. Yeah? Well, so did I. And I'm like, all right, dude. Come on. From one Michigan Wolverine to another, what the hell's going on? Why am I stopped every time I try to get from point A to point B? He kind of thinks about it, and he's like, I don't know what you did. I don't know why you did it. But for some reason, you set off some kind of alert that I have never seen before. Never seen before? I didn't do anything. He kind of chuckles to himself. Right, right. That's what they all say. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Suspicious Behavior. Real stories from people whose story doesn't quite check out. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and this this is Snap Judgment. Now, it is all well and good to avoid suspicious behavior when it's happening out there somewhere. But what if the strange goings-on are happening right under your own roof? Lena Williams has a story for us about her very, very interesting childhood. My dad walked in the door one afternoon with a huge pile of lumber that he could barely fit through the front door and announced that he had a new project he was working on. Of course, the remnants of the last 20 projects were scattered around the living room, but this project was a little bit different. Dad announced that he was going to be building a boat in our living room. I want to clarify here that this was not the living room of some palatial estate. 
We lived in the Johnson Projects on 115th Street in East Harlem in New York City. Even though we were poor and lived in the projects, my dad would get these amazing bursts of energy and work three jobs and play a saxophone on the street for hours and hours to make enough money to take us on these amazing adventures. My mom wanted us to take all that money and move the hell out of the projects, but my dad was convinced that it was more important for us to see the world. He unrolled this piece of newspaper that had this sketch on it. And he said, yes, I'm going to build a skiff. It's going to be probably about 16 feet long. He was hoping for 18 feet, but if it was 18 feet, then he wouldn't have room to walk all the way around it in the living room. He cleared everything out from the middle of the living room, so our television was now wedged next to the sofa. So if you wanted to watch TV, you had to stretch out the long way, and you were about a foot from the television. There had been a rug in the living room when this project started. And my mom would freak out because she said, James, we are never going to get our deposit back. So he pulled up the rug. He had the workspace on the floor on this bare, it wasn't even linoleum, it was like, it was pretty much like rubbly cement. Within two days, we had the bottom of a skiff in the middle of the living room up on sawhorses. And we had to kind of walk around it to get in and out of the apartment every day. About the third week of building was a time that dad had to attach the sides of the boat and it required the sides to be bent. And his solution to making this happen was to boil four huge pots of water on the stove until our entire apartment was steamy and sweaty with boiling water. And then he took the planks and put them into the bathtub and had me hold them on one end as he poured hot water down them and said, okay, Mo, push. And then little by little, they would bend and stretch until it had just the right curve. And they would have to sit there for days drying out. We did this twice. The second time we did it, the bending didn't go so well and the wood started to crack at the flexing point. My dad got really angry. He took a hacksaw and chopped the whole thing apart. And I went to my room because it was better not to be around when dad was in the breaking stuff mood. It wasn't the first time I had seen that. Not long before, one of his saxophones had a key that had broken, and he took a ball-peen hammer and spent the next hour smashing it flat from the bell all the way to the mouthpiece, just crumpled it flat, and then stomped on it to fold it in half and fold it in half again, and then threw it down the incinerator. It was sort of part of his pattern. He would get really excited about something, really excited about a project, really excited about building something. And then if it didn't go well, it would derail him because he was bipolar. After he was done chopping apart the broken plank, he took the pieces and kicked them outside the door and slammed the door shut. But eventually dad calmed down, got another plank, got it bent, and then once those two sides dried out, we attached them. The whole project altogether took probably about four months. And by the time the boat had taken shape, he spent probably three weeks creating and carving a swan to go on the front of the boat that he uh, bolted and glued on and it had these outstretched wings. That was his pride and joy, that carved swan on the front of the boat. Finally, the day came when he declared the boat done. My dad borrowed my grandfather's old Buick LeSabre, 
And we then took this boat down 10 flights of stairs. It was me and my dad and my cousins, and we had blankets. And we put the blankets down on every landing and slid the boat down, then picked the blankets from behind, put them down in front, and slid it down the next flight of stairs. And trundled it around the corner to where Grandpa's La Sabre was waiting and strapped it to the top of the car. Now, at this point, my dad could only see out of the bottom third of the windshield, so he drove us at probably about 10 miles an hour out to Coney Island. And we got to the edge of the water, and I had my little life vest on, and we were all wearing all white because that's what sailors wear. And we all climbed in on our little special stools, and my dad was the last one to climb in, and he pushed us off. And then all of a sudden, poof, wind caught the sail, and we were sailing. I turned around to look over one shoulder. I could see people like little tiny specks on the beach. I don't even know how long we were out there. It felt like probably all day. And Dad took the sail down, and we paddled back into the beach. That was the first time that we took that boat out, and it turned out to also be the last time that we took that boat out. And when we got back home that night, he went to bed and stayed there for a while, one of his longer times staying in bed. We never did move out of the projects, but I think for him to be on that boat that day with us, for us to have an experience that was so outside of living on the 10th floor in the projects in a 20-story building, it was liberating, it was freeing, it was so outside of being cooped up in a two-bedroom apartment. And as an adult, I look back and I say, for all of the instability, that was the best job that they could do. And I'm gonna say they did a pretty damn good job. I would not trade that day on that boat with my dad for anything, for anything ever. That was Melina Williams. Melina is a new Snap Judgment favorite, and we hope to bring you more Melina stories in the very near future. That piece was produced by Julia DeWitt with sound design by Renzo Goria. Rebecca grew up in a conservative evangelical family, the daughter of a pastor. But this is not a story about losing faith or gaining faith. It's a story about what happened one night with a mysterious phone call. I was 23. I was sitting with my mom and dad in our living room in the parsonage. The parsonage is the house that the church owns that a preacher lives in with his or her family. He'd been their pastor for 12 years. It's something he just loves. He's really, really good at it. It comes completely organically to him. He can work 100 hours a week and not feel it. Like, he just loves it. The church phone rang, and my dad answered it. Then there were these long silences. This often happened, like during the dinner hour. Mom would try to guess what was happening on the other end of the line. It was always catastrophe, you know. You know, Sue is pretty sick. I wonder if she died. Bless her heart. She was always, like, killing people off in phone conversations. He said very little. And he hung up without, it seemed like, saying goodbye to whoever he was talking to. And then he said... Beck, I need to talk to mom alone. 
I went into my room and I can't remember how long they talked. I mean, an hour or two, but I knew something serious had happened. And so I finally went back into the living room and said, I need to go to bed and I just want to know if everything's okay. And my mom said, you know, do you want to talk to her alone? My dad said yes. And I sat down with him on the sofa in our living room. What had happened was that for a couple of years, dad had been having an affair with a woman at the church. Dad told me that they'd had an inappropriate relationship. And I actually asked him, I said, but you weren't, I think I might have thrown down the word lover, which I don't approve of ever in any setting. I don't know if he used the word sexual, but he told me that they were more than friends her husband had found an email from dad. And so she called dad because her husband asked her to. And I got very, very quiet and very still until he said, can I ask what you're thinking? Which I think was pretty bold. And I said, well, this was your gift and you shot yourself in the foot. And he said, I know, Beck, I know. This other couple thought that we could just deal with it privately, like the two couples. My mother thought that was like patently absurd and unchristian. You don't hide something like that, you deal with it up front. Somehow, dad with the lay leaders of the church decided that dad definitely needed to resign and that the way to do that would be to talk on Sunday to the whole congregation. So to stand up in front of the church and to say that he was leaving and to say why. The fact that dad was going to publicly tell the whole church what had happened just intuitively made sense to me. I didn't know how else he would do it. I mean, I think if he had said he was going to write a letter and just disappear, I would have thought that was weird. Sunday morning, it was quiet and the congregation was singing. They were singing the hymn right before my dad was going to talk. And it was, come thou fount of every blessing. It's actually one of my favorite songs, but I felt like I had never heard it before then. And now I feel like I've heard it at every single church ever since then. It's really gorgeous. And the lyrics are like, oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Even at the time, I was like, who chose this song? <laughs> like, the, the deacons were like, let's really stick it to them. Like, we'll do, come thou found of every blessing. The congregation is singing it, and we're walking up the side aisle. I didn't think anybody knew what was going on. Like, I thought people were just like, what's this about? My brother told me later that he was sort of thumping his chest like Yom Kippur style. We sat in the very front row. My dad was sitting next to me, and he put his hand on my back as he got up. My mother went up with him. She sat down behind him in one of those big old preacher thrones. And the first thing he said was, Beloved, I stand before you today for the last time as your pastor. I've broken my marriage vows. He said he had lied to us, to our family. He had lied to the church. But then in this kind of strange pastoral move, he was like, but I didn't lie about the good news. That was going to be it. He was going to walk away. And then he kind of like snagged and he turned back to the pulpit and to the microphone and his face was all scrunched up and kind of blotched. 
and he said into the microphone, I'm just so sorry, and kind of lost it. And then he and my mother walked off the steps, and my brother and I lined up behind them, and we walked out the front doors of the church. I remember thinking, I feel like a Kennedy. <laughs> I leaned against my brother, and we had no idea what was next. I don't know about the way it affected my faith. It certainly affected my ecclesiology, like my understanding of how the church should work. I mean, I think Dad was back in the pulpit by the time I decided to go to divinity school. When I got to divinity school, we were taught your congregation, they're not your friends, they're your vocation, they're your call. You love them, you know them well, but there's this boundary. And that was such a huge relief to me. I mean, of course, <laughs> don't the flock is sort of a standard ethical boundary. Rebecca herself is a practicing evangelical minister, and her parents are still together today. That story was produced by our own Nick Vanderkolk. When Snap Judgment returns, someone finds out more than they wanted to about someone special. Someone else starts acting very strange over a very common human condition, for real. When Snap Judgment the Suspicious Behavior episode continues. Stay tuned. Good communication is crucial for any business, especially when the people you work with aren't in the same office. You'd be able to stay connected and meet with coworkers and clients wherever they are. And that's why millions of small business professionals rely on Citrix GoToMeeting. And you should too. It's a proven solution for meeting and collaborating online. With GoToMeeting, you can share the same screen to review documents and presentations in real time, which makes it easier for everyone to stay on the same page. And with built-in HD video conferencing, you just need a webcam to see each other face-to-face. -face. It's like being together in the same room. GoToMeeting allows you to present, to demonstrate, and simply just meet from anywhere with any Mac, PC, tablet, or smartphone. See why millions choose GoToMeeting. Start hosting your own face-to-face -face online meetings today. Try a free 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SNAP. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SNAP. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the suspicious behavior episode. Our next story comes to Snap from the rarefied world of art. And as you will soon discover, the first mistake anyone can make who's trying to get away with suspicious behavior is to mess around with the wrong person's money. When I was in high school, my uncle Ron and his family moved from New York City out to the Burbs to Maplewood, New Jersey. My uncle was an artist, and Maplewood wasn't exactly a thriving hub of the art world, especially compared to the city. So when he opened a gallery on a rundown back street, everyone thought it was kind of quaint. 
But then one day I heard from some of my family that something peculiar had happened and that Uncle Ron's little gallery was getting attention. This is how Uncle Ron explains it. I was going into the gallery one day and this kind of quiet, shy black guy was standing outside and I asked him if he wanted to come in. He acted a little reluctant, but he did come in. And then he just sort of stood there and looked at me and he handed me an AMP bag, which I opened up and was full of these little cardboard paintings. Most of them were like sort of magical looking still lives, little sailboats and teardrops. Other ones were of slaves and various kind of slave encumberments. I said, these are great, you know, I'd like to show these here. And he left them and he never told me his name, never, never spoke at all. Every time I asked him a question that was personal, he would just put his hands up to his lips and said, shh. He said he wasn't quite sure what to make of the encounter. But then a few days later, another clue appeared. In the back, outside the gallery, Ron found a suspicious package. There was a box. Inside the box were all these hundreds of little pieces of broken styrofoam with a little note on top of it, which was a a way of how to put the thing together. It was actually a, a broken up, large painting that had to be reassembled. And after uh, two days of assembling it, it was a eight by eight foot, sort of a somber looking, dark, someone coming out of the darkness with light eyes, a slave with a noose around his neck. So even though my Uncle Ron said he still didn't know anything about this guy, he decided to hang the art up in the gallery and introduce his work to the world. The paintings were great, and I was just going to show them and... You know, if I sold any of them, he would get the money. A lot of people showed a lot of interest, and when they heard the story, of course, it was like, wow, I'm really interested. And then the word sort of got out, and sort of a firestorm started. And the show was, you know, an incredible success. Everything sold, and people, a lot of New York collectors were very interested in it. Word of Ron's anonymous artist rippled through the art world. And before long, an art critic for the New York Times, Barry Schwabsky, was reviewing the show was, you know, very impressed with the show. He really liked it. Gave it a very good review, along with a bunch of question marks, since the artist was anonymous. And that brought a lot of people in. Once the Times wrote about it, it was on. The art was selling, the small ones were going for 150 bucks, and the large ones about 900. The show made about $25,000. It got so much attention. It was like an artist's dream, you know, selling it all out. Things were great, but with success came scrutiny. And then there were collectors who wanted to find out who he was. Well, I said, I didn't have any idea how to get a hold of him, where to find him. And they suggested maybe they should hire a private detective. And I was like, man, you know, I don't really think so. And that's when my uncle decided things had gone too far. He called up the New York Times writer who had gotten him all the attention and said he needed to set the record straight. That's when I called up Schwabsky and told him that I was the anonymous artist. There was no mysterious black man with a plastic bag. My Uncle Ron was the anonymous artist. So then Ron picked up the phone, called everyone who had purchased the art, and fessed up. I called people up and said, look, this is the truth, this is the story. So if you still want the piece, then it's fine. If you don't, then that's fine too. A lot of people didn't want the piece. A lot of people were really pissed off. The ramifications of it for me was that I discovered that creating a fictional artist 
was really more than I had bargained for because I think everybody came suspicious of me after that. My uncle's world fell into two camps, those that were impressed with his artistic genius and those that felt betrayed. So there was this battleground between the two groups of people. I was surprised about, you know, the people who took it the hardest and the people who took it the best. The people that got mad about the race issue were mostly white collectors who thought I was using race, you know, as manipulation for them to buy work. And most of the black people, a lot of black people bought work, were very supportive about the idea because they thought it exposed racism. I wouldn't say it was fistfights, but there was, like, very angry feelings expressed. Among the angriest was Ron's own wife, because she was also tricked. My cousin Aaron, Ron's son, says he knew all along his dad was really the anonymous artist, but for some reason his mom didn't. I thought it was silly that people that knew him well, like my mom, didn't know it was hit. Like, you could walk down into the basement and just see all the work. I feel like since he was saying it wasn't him, that was more important than anything she saw. Aaron's mom, who's now passed away, had been defending my uncle and the anonymous artist all over town. One of the reasons my mother was so upset was because, yeah, she she was sticking up for him. People that would say, this seems like Ron's work, she'd be like, no, it's not. I'm not proud that he had to keep it from certain people. But I think he would have his own reasons for that, and you'd have to ask him what those reasons were. I needed people to believe in it to build up the art, to build up the belief myself. People's belief in it made it stronger. So, yeah, her belief, since she was around me a lot, and I was talking to her about it all the time, made it grow. I think she understood, and I think she she was fine with it in the end. My uncle says his social and artistic experiment was a success. But the repercussions to my family were the price we all paid. Almost 15 years later, my mom is still really pissed at him. And my cousin Aaron says he hopes his dad learned a lesson. The problem is, when you hurt someone's feelings, no matter who it is, but especially your wife's feeling, there's a problem. And no matter what he says, I think if he got to do it over, he wouldn't have hurt anyone's feelings. But for my uncle Ron, it wasn't so simple. I think that having hurt feelings is... Not bad, is it? I mean, it's sort of is a way of growing in some ways. I mean, I hate to make it, you know, you hurt somebody and they grow, but the thing was about emancipation. It was freeing people from the constrained idea of how things work and how, how things operate. And, I mean, it all ended peacefully. No one got killed. A few years later, my uncle moved to Philly. And these days, he's got a little gallery there. Well, actually, he calls it a collection, not a gallery. It's a collection of artists who may not exist or fabricated artists who may not exist. So my identity is not local. It's infinite. It keeps on growing. The anonymous artist is still living well on the street, creating art. That story was produced by Andrew Stelzer and Snaps Anna Sussman. To find out more about Ron Cohen's, or should we just call him the anonymous artist, his ongoing shenanigans, we're going to have links to those New York Times articles if you want to check those out. Find out more on our website, snapjudgment.org. 
Our next story can be hard to hear. We know that monsters exist and that the world can be unfair. We know this. But for some crimes, it can feel like the victim has to suffer twice. Due to the nature of the crime referenced in this story, it may be inappropriate for young children. And sensitive listeners are advised. Snap Judgment Stephanie Fu has a story. Cole Welsh always knew he was gay. And growing up in a small conservative town, being gay was not easy. His parents were planning to send him to a religious conversion camp. And so, as soon as he turned 17, Cole ran away. I joined the military. The circus wasn't taking applications, and it was the best way to kind of get out of town, so. Yeah, the military. And though the military didn't have the best track record for gay rights, he thought it was better than his situation. I didn't think that uh, my sexual orientation would be relevant to my service. I thought that if I worked hard, there wouldn't be any issues. I was probably one of the youngest people in the military at the time that I joined. I was just had turned 17 and kind of had to work my way up from there. And the military wound up being the place where Cole found the acceptance he'd been searching for. First, there was a very tight-knit gay community there. And secondly, he found he could be judged on the merit of his performance. I went to intelligence school. We deployed um, in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom II. I served as an interrogations analyst at the uh, infamous uh, Bugarab prison. Cole won multiple awards during his tour and did so well that he got a special ROTC scholarship to finish his undergraduate degree and train to become an officer. That's when he met Kevin. We kind of hit it off right from the go. He was a really great guy. He was, he was stunning. He was a gorgeous Latino man. I liked his confidence, his quietness. We'd hang out in uh, his barracks and we're inseparable after about the first week that we met. One of the men in the gay community was a staff sergeant who seemed like a pretty cool guy. Kevin and Cole went to his house to hang out. We went over to play some Xbox or video games, have a couple beers, and and um, basically th- those beers were, um, they were a little too strong. After just one beer, Kevin and Cole found themselves incapacitated. After just like one. What happened next? was Kevin and I were violently sexually assaulted. We got out of there as as soon as we were mentally able to. We basically said, oh my God, this guy is a monster. What do we do? And you know, the military is a very insular institution. So what what are you going to do if, you know, if you're trying not to rock the boat? And the first thing you do is you swept everything under the rug and try not to make a complaint about it. Cole wasn't going to let one tragedy ruin his life. He was going to be an officer, so he kept working hard and tried to put it behind him. One day, Cole was named the captain of an ROTC training exercise, a huge achievement. That was the pinnacle of my career, five years of effort up to that point. After the exercise, his commanders wanted to speak to him. He thought he was going to get a glowing review. But that wasn't it. Instead, they wanted to talk to him about his latest physical. I got called into a room with a, with a bunch of officers and uh, told, you have HIV. The results of his physical showed 
that he was HIV positive. That meant he was no longer eligible to serve or to receive any health benefits. That ended my military career and uh, got sent home. I was dazed. At first, I was disbelief. What did I do? How could this happen? And then I vomited. Cole's partner, Kevin, was tested as well. He was also positive. At first, Cole didn't understand how they contracted the disease. But slowly, they began to see a pattern. One after another, acquaintances of the staff sergeant all began to receive positive HIV diagnoses. So Cole figured it out. The assailant was going out and raping young men and intentionally giving them HIV. It turned out that because the staff sergeant was active duty, even though he was HIV positive, he'd been allowed to stay in the military, but he was transferred to a desk job where he would never see action. Epidemiologists traced the men's sexual partners and confirmed Cole's suspicions that the staff sergeant was the one spreading the disease. The epidemiologists at Fort Lewis recommended that we make a report to CID, Criminal Investigative Division. Unfortunately, that was a dead end. The CID said, well, because this happened off of base, we don't have jurisdiction. I went to office after office. I left messages at the commanding generals. I did everything possible to work within the system in order to get this guy from assaulting more people. I realized that the military wasn't going to do anything. I feel they were perfectly fine with letting this person assault and in fact, other people with HIV. This is the real result of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is that it created a situation where people could be assaulted and everyone was afraid to talk about it. This went on for two years. You know, knowing the truth and having like no one listen to you. I was very lucky to have my partner. Kevin, uh, Kevin basically kept me sane. Kevin and Cole got married and they supported each other through everything. After two years, when Cole's attacker still remained on the loose, he went to the local police. Kevin and I went to uh, the Pierce County prosecutor. The police did an investigation, and or the assailant ended up pleading guilty to what he was doing. The assailant received a five-year sentence. And he's still in jail um, in a Washington State uh, correctional facility. When the assailant was arrested and stopped, you know, I've been asked before, well, did you feel good that the, the jerk was finally put away and he would get some justice? And to me, the answer is an unequivocal no. I don't think that this person started off as being a bad guy. In my opinion, the assailant was an insane person. The assailant was in an environment that stigmatized him for being gay and stigmatized him for having HIV. You know, some people say, well, it should just be blamed on him. It's his responsibility. That opinion doesn't hold water with me. I think that the U.S. military, through its absolute negligence, created a monster. I hold them responsible. When it comes to empathizing with the assailant, I know how much the stigma that I faced affected me. What happened to us was so, so traumatic. It literally damaged my mind. I wasn't able to concentrate. I felt scattered. I have a tremor in my hands now. 
it took me a long time to come back from that. It took uh, years of therapy. I just kept trying and just kept trying and I wouldn't give up. After multiple years of effort, you know, it became easier. And though Cole may empathize with his attacker, he and Kevin don't even want to think about his name anymore. I have no interest in contacting the assailant whatsoever. I have no interest in dealing with the military any further. I've moved on. They have bigger things to worry about now. We found out on uh, New Year's Eve that our surrogate was in fact uh, pregnant. And uh, Kevin and I now have a baby on the way. We're not stuck. We're not stuck. We're moving on. Thanks so much to Cole for being so brave as to share his story. Cole's now going to law school and attempting to change the military's policy on soldiers who are HIV positive. Kevin's studying to become an AIDS researcher, and the two of them want to give a shout-out to the University of Washington for providing them with HIV care. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the suspicious behavior episode. We'll be right back after the break. Support for Snap Judgment comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the suspicious behavior episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and if you want to get into some suspicious behavior, where else would you start but Los Angeles, the city where everyone wants to be someone else? Storyteller Doug Cordell breaks it down. I met Victor through Craigslist. I had come to L.A. from New York for the winter, and maybe longer if things went well. When my cab pulled up to a classic California bungalow, a wiry little guy in a sock hat came out and waved me in. He was intense, I could see that, but we clicked pretty well. I moved in that night, and we stayed up late, drinking and talking about all kinds of things. Soon we were hanging out together quite a bit, tooling around town in his old cutlass. There were, however, disturbing aspects of living with him. For one, he began to imitate my daily routine. I exercised in my room every morning. And within a few days, I began to hear Victor in his room grunting his way through a workout, doing push-ups or skipping rope. Nothing like starting the day with intense activity, he told me, coming out of his room soaked in sweat. You should try it. In the evenings, I read in the small front room, setting up candles and a glass of wine on a TV tray, while Victor watched Kung Fu DVDs in the living room. A week after I moved in, I found Victor in the front room with a book in his lap and candles and a glass of wine on the TV tray next to him. I used to read here all the time, he said. I realized I needed to get back to that. As time went on, I was more reluctant to sit around and drink with Victor. Once, after several hours of booze and talking, he leaned his head back and gave me a wild look as if he was thinking of cracking the bottle over my head. 
Some mornings, I would wake up and see Victor in the front yard, eyeing the base of the house. It turned out the foundation was sketchy, and whenever it rained, the house was in danger of sliding down the street. Apparently, he didn't have the money to fix the problem, so all he could do was pace around the yard, cursing the rain. Money was an issue for Victor. That's why he was renting out the room to me. He was an out-of-work movie grip and spent most of his day calling people about leads on jobs. Then one day, he came bouncing into my room with a manic grin, telling me about a gig he'd just scored. It was a photo shoot in Beverly Hills, and he was sure it would lead to a lot of work. Before he headed out, he insisted we toast it with a beer. It was 7.30 in the morning. That night, Victor came roaring in late. A whole job ruined by some New York hag, he said, coming into my room, chugging from a bottle of wine. What happened? She wanted me to work till midnight on a promo shoot of some actress's house. I told her I was done for the day, and she starts moaning, saying the job wasn't finished. I just split. Meanwhile, check out what I walked away with. He pulled a big telephoto lens from his parka. You took that? Yeah, he laughed, and you should hear the message she left. He handed his phone to me. A woman's angry voice came on. Victor, this is Marsha. You're in big trouble, mister, and you know it. Call me back, or you will regret it. Watching my face, Victor couldn't help doubling over. She seems really mad, I said. Screw her. I hope she comes looking for it. I'll chop her head off. Anyway, I got something better lined up guy there turned me on to a film job. I could get my union card. Here's the thing, though, he said, moving closer to me. I need some clean urine because they're going to test me. Tomorrow. You mind if I borrow some of yours? My urine? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, is it a problem? No, no, it's not a problem. I just... Great. Thanks, brother. He gave my shoulder a squeeze. I could hardly sleep that night, imagining how this was going to blow back on me. Who knows what he would do on his next job? Steal something bigger? Chop somebody's head off? And now they'd have my urine. Could they trace urine back to me? By 6 a.m., I had made a bold decision. I would not give Victor a urine sample. No. I would sneak out while he was still asleep. Frankly, I was afraid of him. I knew he'd be up by 6.30, so I had to move quickly. I went out to the back steps and, in a feverish whisper, called a cab. Back in the house, I threw my clothes in the suitcase and grabbed my things out of the bathroom, tiptoeing through the hall. I slipped out the front door and dragged the suitcase two houses away, where I told the cab to pick me up. As I jumped into the cab, I heard Victor's front door slam. Out the rear window, I saw him standing on his porch. He had that wild look in his eyes. I told the driver I was going to the airport and to step on it. I figured I'd try my luck on flights to New York. L.A. was a big town, but not big enough, and I didn't want to cross paths with Victor. I only hoped New York was far enough away. Doug Cordell is an Emmy-nominated writer and performer in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's currently working on a novel. That piece was produced by Mark Ristich and Jamie DeWolf. 
Regina Gold got pregnant, she had a vision of what it was going to be like. She was going to eat bonbons and work on her screenplays and glow with pregnant bliss. But pretty soon, she realized that being pregnant wasn't going to be quite what she expected. It really felt like Alien versus Predator. It was just this thing growing inside me that was going to bust out. I was so nauseous that I couldn't move off of my mother's couch. I'm vomiting like three to four times a day. My skin was like a dusty gray. Then I started having other problems. I went to sleep one day and I have this dream. All of a sudden I was wearing a peasant dress and I was running down a cobblestone street and I was running for my life. A couple days later, my mother asked me to go outside and get the mail. I went to put my hand in the mailbox and instead of going in the mailbox, my hand went up in the air. Then the other hand went up and my arms would not come down. It looked like I was reaching up towards the Lord. And my mom came outside and I was standing in front of the mailbox with my arms up in the air and my head up because I was trying to figure out what my hands were doing up there. And I thought, well, maybe this is some kind of a pregnancy thing. I heard about your ankles swelling, people get depressed. I'm like, maybe there's a thing where your arms fly up. I walked back into the house with my arms up, reaching towards God. I got in the, <laughs> I got in the house and I just stood like that. And then they just kind of floated back down. So I just thought, okay, let's just pretend that didn't happen. It was probably an isolated incident. But as I was coming down the stairs the next day, I went to reach for the banister and my arms did the same thing. They just reached up towards God. And, <laughs> and my mom walked by. I was like, I know this looks bad, but I'm telling you, I cannot put my arms down. And then she got really upset. She's like, well, then you need to see a doctor. But I didn't want to go to the doctor because I thought, well, what if I'm crazy? If I go to the doctor, maybe they'll take the baby away. Like, this is serious. I better keep this undercover. So I walked around for two weeks with my arms going up, going down. I sat at the table. Sometimes I had to wait to eat my dinner. My mother got to the point where she just didn't comment. Then I have this dream again, but this time I'm fully awake. And I know that I'm not dreaming because I can see everything that's going on in my mom's house, but yet I'm running down a cobblestone street. And so I actually started to run. So I'm running and I'm running out of space because I'm in my mom's house. So I run out fast. <laughs> I'm in my mother's yard and she has a pool and I just run around her pool. This crazed pregnant person just running around the pool. I run and run until I turn around, I look up and there are standing there two Nazis and they point a gun to my head. And I got to the point where I was kind of mumbling like, don't shoot, don't shoot. I don't know any German, 
what they said they were going to shoot me. I said, listen, I haven't done anything to you. It was all in German. I got down on my knees and then the image went away. Weeks go by. Finally, it got so bad that I was really worried about the baby, but I was more worried that I was crazy and that I wasn't going to be able to take care of the baby. I said, I've got to go to the hospital, turn myself in. And I should have asked for help, but I was so upset that I didn't feel like I had time to have that conversation. So I just grabbed the keys, and as I'm getting ready to get in the car, my arms float up. And so I had to kind of, if I leaned my head forward, I could grip the steering wheel. The Nazis, they're in the back seat. I drove to the hospital just like that. was crowded in the elevator on the way up to the 11th floor with my arms up in the air. <laughs> and it was just cricket, quiet. And then I got off the elevator and I went up to the receptionist. I said, I have two Nazis on either side of me. And one of them wants to shoot me. And if I don't get some help for this, I'm going to jump into the closest lake. Next thing you know, I was escorted by security to the downstairs unit, which some people call the psych ward, and they put me in a glass room. When I realized I was in the psych ward, I was like, uh-oh, this is really serious. I got to get out of here, so I'm going to have to try to look normal. So I kept pacing back and forth in this glass room, trying to keep my arms down, trying to look casual, and it was a six-hour wait. Finally, the doctor came in. I just started rattling things off. Anything that might contribute. I was like, I had some tomatoes. I had a half a grapefruit. I had some water. I took my compazine. And then the nurse that was sitting with the doctor said, compazine? And I said, yes. A few months ago, I was so nauseous. I couldn't take anymore. I was throwing up all the time. So the doctor gave me this drug for nausea called Compazine, and the nurse said, oh my God, that's what's wrong. Some people, when they take certain medications, Compazine is one of them, it causes facial tics, loss of control of your limbs, and hallucinations. I put the Compazine suppository in on my way to the hospital thinking, well, at least that'll keep the nausea down, which will help me when I try to explain myself. I never thought for a second that it was the Compazine. I was so relieved. I took the Nazis back home with me, and they eventually just faded away. My mom is African-American. She grew up in the Bronx and just has always had a strong affinity for Jewish culture. I didn't know oive was a Jewish expression. I thought it was black. I'm not sure if that's why I had that experience. I just don't know. All I can tell you is those Nazis seemed really real to me. It felt like I was going to get shot in the head. The baby, she was perfect. There was no problems. But she does have a strong uh, attraction towards Judaism. You think it's a coincidence? <laughs> she made that menorah over there.
Big thanks to Gina Gold for sharing her story with Snap. It was produced by Julia DeWitt. You've reached the end of the Suspicious Behavior episode, and no one's locked up yet. You think maybe you missed some? Just check out snapjudgment.org. We're on the iTunes, the SoundCloud, the Android, the Stitcher. Hours of Snap storytelling await your pleasure. Snap was produced by myself and everyone who couldn't run away fast enough. What you gonna do when they come for you? Just ask the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He learned his beats the hard way. Pat Masidi Miller. Anna Sussman prefers prison food over airport food. You'll thank Stephanie Fu for bringing you the paper even while she takes away your wallet. Nick Vanderkoek never met a hubcap he didn't like. Julia DeWitt doesn't carry identification. Renzo Gorio carries Julia DeWitt's identification. And Mueller Bina sorts through his neighbor's trash for salacious information. If you're looking for a rugged paramilitary force, you, my friend, have come to the right place. In addition to Big Bird, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is, of course, known for extreme firepower. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, prx.org. This is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could call a friend who's got a guy who's real tight with this dude that does things, if you know what I mean. And you can call this guy about a job. And when he tells you that you got to pay him $500 for the privilege of never calling him again, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is in 